Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. The very idea of an elite in 18th century Ireland was inseparable from the island's all-pervasive colonial context, rendering it markedly distinct from anything that might be found on the neighbouring island of Britain. By the 18th century, successive waves of colonisation had left Ireland with a complex and volatile set of allegiances. The island remained within the orbit of British control, but continued to exist outside the Union. Its small colonial establishment was both loyal to the crown and increasingly hungry for legislative autonomy, and the bulk of its peasantry was split between a vast, deeply resentful Catholic majority and a progressively radical faction of dissenting Protestants. The ethno-cultural patchwork created by experimental plantations in Ireland meant that to speak of a rightful Irish nobility was almost impossible one first had to define who the Irish were. Tim, that was an extract from your latest book, Nobility Mm. and the Making of Race in 18th Century Britain, which was published by Bloomsbury Academic this Mm -hmm. autumn. Yep. First of all, massive congratulations, Tim. Thank you very much. (laughs) Sorry, massive congratulations to you, Naomi, for your beautiful speaking voice. (laughs) In that quote, it brought it alive to me. Will you do? Will you do the audiobook if we ever get an audiobook out of this? Oh my god, I'm gonna, definitely! I'm going to put forth your name straight away. I want a yeah, new, I love yeah, that. new career in audiobook <laughs> reading. I would definitely be up. Okay, so today, <laughs> listeners, we're going to talk about Tim's book and particularly the part of it which deals with Irish nobility in the 18th century, uh, which has a chapter dedicated into the book. Um, by the way, Tim, how can we get our hands on this wonderful publication? Okay, so first things first, it's it's an academic monograph. So this is destined uh, mainly for researchers. So you're not going to be finding it in the airport, unfortunately. Not yet, anyway. Um, <laughs> and, and secondly, uh, it's not all about Ireland. There's just one big and very interesting chapter about Ireland that we'll be discussing today. You can get it on the Bloomsbury Academic website if you're interested. If you go there, you'll actually get a little discount at the moment. So that's probably the best place to buy it at the moment. But otherwise, you can get it everywhere uh, online that you would normally get a book, you know, uh, on, on websites. So uh, just type that into Google and you'll, you'll come to it pretty quickly. Cool. Well, we'll put the name as well in the show description. Yes, great. We're, <laughs> we're going to get in, into research about Ireland and Irish nobility in a minute. But first of all, why don't we start out with setting out the wider theme of the book and where this idea of Irish nobility fits into the broader picture. So Tim, can you, can you lay us out a, a scheme there? What, what is the book all about? Okay, right. So this is <laughs> this is like the question that I dread being asked at like parties, <laughs> you know, because people people push me and they say, "No, really, tell me," and then their eyes glaze over <laughs> as I as I bore them for the next like half an hour, and I, I get excited about it, and they get more and more bored, but there's no stopping me now. <laughs> Listen, like it, it's actually a, you know it's a really really big subject. So in a nutshell, uh, the book is about how the tradition of nobility influenced the concept of race mm-hmm. in the 18th century. Okay. That's what it's about. But the issue with that is that, you know, to understand what that means, you kind of have to dissect the idea of nobility and dissect the idea of race to see where they intersect. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the um, that's that's where people's eyes begin to glaze. Uh, so so let me try try and be as enrapturing as possible with this. Um, no, it is. I don't need to be because this is actually a really 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 fascinating subject. I've talked about this in the past because all the way through, actually, since we began this podcast, Naomi, mm-hmm. I have been researching this. You know, uh, on the side of us making episodes, I have been doing different parts of research for this book. So you may have heard little bits of it kind of make their way into the episodes. And one of those bits that you might remember is that the idea of race, as we know it today, like human races, that's a really, really new idea. So it's about 200, 300 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, It emerges around the end of the 18th century. Mm -hmm. But its structure, like the way it's built, is actually really familiar. And when it emerged at the end of the 18th century, it was really familiar as well. 
And the closer you look at race, the more familiar it begins to look and the more like blood-based traditions mm-hmm. in nobility it begins to look right so the book i argue in the book that one of the reasons why race was so successful as an idea even though it's it's completely arbitrary and like confected as as i'll explain in a minute is that we were used to dividing people up like this mm-hmm. that long before we created this idea of human races we were already dividing people up on account of their bloodlines and considering them superior or inferior mm. on account of their bloodlines so this is like we're talking about a period before the science of genetics existed. So people didn't really know about inherited characteristics and stuff. What we're seeing is that people created this idea about like categorizing different sorts of humans into inferior and superior based on their inheritance or their like family background. And the reason it was done was basically because it suited the people in power because they had decided they were essentially born to rule and then they could create this whole rationale for it. And that was existing for class. And then it was sort of co-opted or it borrowed for this newly emerging idea about race, where we would divide up humans into different types. Is that right? That's exactly it. You got it in one. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we might remember from our episode that we did on DNA and genetics that genetics is is really, really new. We didn't really understand genetics in the modern sense until the 20th century. And in the 18th century, it was more than that. Not only did people not necessarily understand genetics, they didn't understand heredity as we would understand it today. Mm. So the idea that like your children look like you because you've given them a little part of you, that's a very new idea. Mm. That's this idea of reproduction. That's this basically dates from the 19th century. Mm-hmm. But in the 18th century, it was a lot more bound up with like providence and God. Okay. So the reason your children looked like you was because God decided that <laughs> they were going to look like you right? Okay. Um, at the end of the day. But I mean, not directly. Mm. So your children look like you because they ate the same things as you uh-huh. and because they lived a similar lifestyle to you. They lived with your family. They were influenced by you. Okay. So they looked like you. This was understood as evidence, I suppose, or a manifestation of God's plan for families. So in the same way, a prince would imbibe the being of a king just by being born into a royal family, by growing up surrounded by other royals. You know, the idea was that they would be formed mentally and physically in a specific way that you could only be formed, um, <laughs> like, surrounded by those people. It was the same with a baker or a butcher. You know, if you if you grew up surrounded by butchers, you would kind of grow up destined to be a butcher. And it, this is at a time when people didn't really change their social rank. Mm. I mean, they did sometimes, but nothing like today. You know, this is pre-industrial revolution. Um, generally, if you're, if you're born a butcher, your parents were butchers, their mm-hmm. parents were butchers, and your kids are going to be butchers, you know. You have the butcher shop in town. You have all the know-how to be a butcher. It doesn't make sense to be anything else, mm. you know. That idea of, like, cultural heredity was pretty much indistinguishable from physical heredity. Mm. Uh, this is where we get into what race actually meant at this point. Mm. So the word race today is so loaded with this biological concept of race mm-hmm. that emerges at the end of the 18th century. Uh, but before this... Basically, the word race means lineal family, and that's it. Okay. So lineal family, in other words, like par- parents, children, their children, going downwards, descending through generations. And you can still see this in other languages. So race is used simply to mean a family in, in French, for mm. instance, sometimes, um, or in other Latin languages. Um, it has a link, an etymological link with root, so like racine, right? Mm. And if you look at a dictionary from the mid-18th century, let's say Johnson's Dictionary, it never mentions types of human beings or subgroups of human beings. Mm. That doesn't come up at all. This this word race and this concept of race had nothing to do with subgroups of human beings. That just did not exist as an idea. But what it does relate to is nobility. Mm. Um, nobility and ideas of dynasties. The idea that status can be passed on through generations. Mm. This isn't a surprise at all, right? Because the power of nobility completely depends on blood legitimacy, right? You know, you only get to inherit the land and the title if you are legitimately, legally considered mm. a blood heir uh, to your to your parents or, or, or in another way, yeah. That's so interesting. I, I find it curious as well, the way that those older ideas had much more of an emphasis on nurture, you know, as we call it, mm. like today, the nature versus nurture uh, debate. But like they thought back in the day 
that the human body could basically adapt to anything and would adapt physically to any conditions that were external, like the climate or whatever, just in a matter of time. And that everyone was sort of flexible mm. like that. Um, so we didn't we didn't have the same concepts that we have today. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this kind of brings us to what human variety was at mm. this point. So yeah, just like you say, this had been going on since antiquity, by the way, this mm. understanding that your physical being, the way you looked, the way you acted was completely dependent on what, what, what was often called climate, but what we could call environment, basically. Okay. Hippocrates was talking about this, you know, mm. 2000 years earlier. Like this has been a pretty standard understanding of the human body until really recently. And it makes sense because we can see it, right? Mm. We can see if we spend time in the sun, that the sun affects our skin. We can see if we don't eat enough, that we, you know, the children won't grow mm. if they aren't fed enough, you know, in their infancy, things like that. We can see that the children of a farmer who was working in a field in the Middle Ages was going to look very different from the fat little prince who was sitting up in the castle, you know, <laughs> and probably grew like, you know, maybe a foot taller than them because they were eating meat, you know. Mm. It was obvious to people. But heredity wasn't obvious. Mm. Like, we consider it so obvious today, but it actually isn't. Because let's say you have two brunettes, you know, who have a little child who looks brunette and looks just like them. They'll have another child who's going to be a redhead and Mm. doesn't look anything like them. You know, so it doesn't actually make as much sense as we presume it to make sense when you don't know about genetics. When you take genetics out of the equation, heredity is actually quite difficult to kind of put together by yourself uh, because there's so many exceptions, right? Right. So what you've done in your book is you've, examine all these different sort of like cultural artifacts like plays and things that people said and books and so on and there and through these you trace the evolution of these ideas you trace how this idea of aristocracy or like some huge sorts of humans being inherently superior to others began then to be applied to different what we would call races of humans or that that's what it came to be called is, is that right? You're tracing these through like cultural artifacts? Basically, yes. Yes. So I trace it across a whole load of different um, discourses. So scientific discourses, travel writing, literature, mm-hmm. as like a current of thought. This isn't just one movement. This wasn't inscribed in policy or in law at one particular point or one year. What you can see is this kind of creeping in. So what we need to understand that while we have this idea of race, then this old idea of race as linear family, On the other side, the 18th century is this age of colonial expansion Mm -hmm. and people are encountering, Europeans are encountering new peoples everywhere and trying to make sense of the world around them while still very much drenched in Christian presumptions. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I wonder how these people got here from the Garden of Eden. Like that's still very much their their narrative. Mm -hmm. The thing was that when you encountered a new population of people and when you noticed that they looked different from you, The understanding was that this, too, was because of the climate. Mm. So different physiques, different statures, different skin colours, different cultural ideas were all, like, pretty much mainstream, all thought to be down to environment. Mm. So this means that skin colour being a marker of difference didn't make any sense Mm. uh, for most of the 18th century. Because skin colour, according to most scientists at that point, was changeable. So, you know, white people could turn black and black people could turn white mm-hmm. according to where they lived. Like, it, different theorists had different ideas, but generally it was believed it would take a few generations, mm. it, maybe 10 generations if you, if you lived in a different climate, that you would physically change uh, to suit that climate. So the idea that we could categorize different subgroups of people according to skin color, for instance, which is just so ingrained in our understanding today of race, would would have been ridiculous. It didn't make any sense at all. Mm. Like it made a lot more sense to divide people up according to religion, uh, right. for instance, because religion decided whether you were going to heaven or hell, right? Uh, so at least you have you know something very definitive there. Uh, but skin color was evidence of the human body's potential. Mm. It, it, you know, uh, a man called Carolus Linnaeus develops a system of taxonomy in 1735. And he creates something that he called the Homo sapiens. This is like a really revolutionary moment in the history of like human classification. So we, we didn't have the word Homo sapiens before this. This guy came up with it. No. Huh. No, we absolutely didn't. And we couldn't because what Linnaeus is doing when he creates the Homo sapien is describing the human being as a species just like an animal species. Mm. And even at the time that was bordering on, if not crossing right into heresy. Huh. Because humans were different, right? Animals were created in the Garden of Eden as like servants of humans. Humans were the main thing on earth and everything else was kind of secondary, according to biblical interpretations of, of creation. 
So Linnaeus, by describing, what he does is he describes the human being with no real distinguishing factor to how he describes everyone else. Mm. So he puts them in a grouping called anthropomorpha, which is things that look like humans. So that includes humans and monkeys and also sloths. You know, sloths, like three-toed sloths. (laughs) That's the the three of those in the same group because we all look kind of the same, basically. Uh, So it's a very brutal kind of dividing up of the world into things that look kind of the same. Right. Like there's no idea of family. You know, there's no idea that humans are somehow blood related to monkeys or anything like that. It's just about observation. That's also how people saw human diversity. So within the genus Homo, he divides humans into the red American, the black African, the yellow Asian and the white European. So these colors, of course, have had such an influence on how we understand kind of the concepts of like racial classification ever since. Mm. Um, but what what he was doing there was describing like the different uh, categories, I suppose, that he could find of what the human can potentially look like. Mm-hmm. There was no sense that those groups were somehow like coherent together, that mm. they were uh, related or that they were, you know, they were kind of a subspecies. No sense like that at all. This was just like varieties that are found within the human species. Like hair color or something. Well, yeah, yeah, basically. Like it's hard for us to wrap our our minds around because we have to think about this like taking genetics and heredity out of the equation Mm. which is hard for us what happens during the 18th century is that that understanding of human variety changes Mm. towards the end of the 18th century around the 1770s 1780s and 1790s we start to get theorists uh, natural historians like um, Immanuel Kant Mm -hmm. and uh, Oliver Goldsmith and a man called uh, Johann Friedrich Blumenbach in Germany who start to discuss human varieties differently. Mm. They start to push the idea that, yeah, sure, the climate maybe had an effect on the human body once upon a time, but it's become in, in, ingrained now into family lines. And like it's difficult to tell exactly where this emerges like concretely, mm-hmm. but basically these theorists start to describe these human varieties as races. Okay. And when they use the word race, what they're using is a word that is completely associated with linear family. Okay. And not just with linear family, a word that's completely associated with nobility. The idea of race here as something that defines you, defines your identity and your status and your place in the world through descending sexual reproduction, Mm. that was something culturally associated with nobility. Now, um, that meant, by the way, that everyone kind of got it straight away, right? So climate theory is quite difficult to understand, as you've just heard. But race wasn't, because people in Britain and America and Europe were used to that. They were used to this idea that the son of a duke is going to be a duke. You know, Mm -hmm. this idea of, of passing on status like that. People were used to kind of thinking about bloodlines as arbiters of social hierarchy. The whole elite was based on that. So what these theorists are basically doing is kind of calling into being this familiar set of blood hierarchies. Mm. And the reason that they were doing it, I argue, is that it, it works as a power strategy. Okay, power strategy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain this well, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm, I'm going to, listen, I'm going to describe to you what, no, what the power strategy of nobility actually is. Okay. Nobility contends that... Number one, some people are just naturally excellent, right? There's just a group of people who are naturally excellent. Number two, that this excellence is transmitted genealogically, that it's passed down through generations. Mm -hmm. Number three, that this excellence kind of gives rise to economic dominance, cultural dominance. These people are going to kind of rise to the top in the world. Number four, you have to keep performing this excellence. You can lose it. You can become degenerate. So you have to keep like, you know, being a virtuous noble if you want to be noble in each generation. Okay. And that your body, the noble body, is an expression uh, of all of this. You know, it's an expression of these things and it's a tool for making this happen. So that your your noble body is actually kind of created to be, to create nobility and to manifest nobility. And that all of this comes together in what we kind of understand culturally as true uh, nobility. Mm. Now, basically, this is transposed onto the idea of race. So we get this idea, this kind of pastiche of nobility. That, number one, Mm. white Europeans are naturally excellent. 
that mm. white European excellence can be transmitted genealogically. So white people pass on their white European excellence to the next generation naturally okay. through the blood. That white Europeans, or that the excellence of white Europeans naturally gives rise to economic and cultural dominance, right? Mm. Like, you know, civilization and whatever, right? Yeah. Um, that, again, you have to perform your whiteness. Okay. You, you, you know, if you, if you let go of your whiteness a little bit, it could, it could become uh, degraded, you know, <laughs> you could lose it, right? So yeah. you have to keep being as white as possible in order to ensure that, like, the whiteness survives. Okay. And that the white body is an expression of this excellence and it's a tool of this excellence. And that, again, integrity of all of these things, performance, inheritance, keeping all this idea of whiteness together yeah. is essential for, like, white excellence okay. to continue. Okay. Right. And the, you call it a power strategy because it's like these people are saying we're on top because we're naturally supposed to be. And this is this whole just complex yeah. justification that we've come up for, for, for it, like to justify it. Yes. So, yeah, basically it is the people on the top of society defining themselves as excellent, as the best. <laughs> yeah. So you get the people who are at the tops, you know, defining not only that they are the best, they define what excellence even is. Mm. So if we kind of break it apart, it's very arbitrary. Like, why why are white people the best? Mm. Because they said so, mm. like, basically. And why is, like, noble decorum the best? You know, why is, like, um, horsemanship and breeding and, like, you know, holding a book on your head or whatever, why are all these things that nobles do, you know, excellent? Because nobles say it is. Mm. This can work if you control the narrative mm. of what excellence is. So in the narrative of race as viewed from the eyes of white Europeans, they controlled what excellence meant. You know, they decided what was excellent and what was not excellent, white Europeans. So, of course, they decided they themselves were excellent. Okay. It's the same with nobility. You know, yep. nobles are in a position to decide what is excellent or not. So they decide that we, we're obviously excellent. Yep. And what that does is it creates a hierarchy. Everyone else has to compare themselves to you, yep. the excellent people. And since they're not like you, they say, well, I suppose I'm not excellent. If I'm a little bit more like you, I'm a little bit more excellent. So, you know, you have layers of it. So the, the whiter you are, the better you are. And the less white you are, the less good you are. The close, closer to nobility, the better you are. The further away, uh, the worse you are. And both of those are defined by your pure of blood mm. when it comes down to it I so it's, it's a brilliant power strategy and it works and this is why nobility has survived like it's it's come back again and again and again mm. throughout european history in loads of different forms by the way i mean like there's just a million different forms of nobility mm. um but it always comes back to this paradigm like like in europe in the 18th century there were several different nobilities like you know at the same time so mm. like the french nobility was based on completely different legal um frameworks to the british nobility or the spanish nobility but they all recognized each other as noble because they were all using the same paradigm and mm. they were effectively using the same paradigm as had been used in the ancient world if we if we go right back to the aristocracies of ancient greece it, you know, this is what the word means, aristocratia, um, the rule of the best people. And, and the ancient mm. Greeks believed that they had what, what they called eugenia. The aristoi had eugenia, which means uh, good birth. Okay. Right? So like something in your family, which is good and inimitable. Mm. It also means, Naomi, <laughs> I hope you're following me. Yeah, I hope you're following I'm me following. at home. Um, <laughs> it also means that nobody else can break into this. Mm. It's a fortress. You create a fortress of power around you because nobody else can imitate your pure blood. Right. You either have it or you don't. You can be let in if the nobles decide, for, you know, to ennoble you. They can create a new spiral of hereditary descent in <laughs> you, right? So, like, you can induct new power. But you can't just take it. Like, yeah. You know, you can't, you can't just go and break in. And it's the same thing with whiteness, right? If you're accepted into this identity of whiteness, fine. Like, great. Um, but you can't, like, you can't just decide that you're uh, just as good as a white person, right? Yeah. Because they have this protected blood identity. Uh, I mean, a, a great example is the prince and the pauper, right? You know, you, you take a king, you take a little prince, steal him away to another country, raise him as a pickpocket, you know, whatever. Find him on the streets of London mm -hmm. several decades later, and he's still the prince. Mm. You know, it, like the condition of his life does not matter. It does not. It doesn't matter if you take away his kingdom. If you think about the princes and you know who who claim to be the future kings of France and Greece today, like they're. Their regimes haven't existed in hundreds of years, and yet they're still the real prince in their minds, right? You know, like you mm. can't take this power away. So it's a brilliant, brilliant power strategy in the sense of, of it works. I mean, it's a horrible power strategy. This is precisely why it gets transposed onto race. So hold on, right. I'm coming to the clincher here. Okay, <laughs> then we're okay. moving on to Ireland straight away, I promise. Um, 
why the 1770s and 1780s and 1790s? Why suddenly, after thousands of years, do we get this shift in the study of human variety from climate to this idea of race? Why suddenly are we starting to describe human diversity in terms of blood and inheritance? Mm. Can you think, Naomi, can you imagine what's happening in the world what, in the 1770s, what could 1780s? What possibly be? It's because, it's because of colonialism. <laughs> yes, it's because, and yeah. one particular part of colonialism. Mm. Is it because of the slave trade? It's because of the slave trade, right? right? And not only because of the slave trade, the rise of abolitionism. Uh-huh. At this point in the 18th century, abolitionism is becoming really strong. It's becoming a real political movement. People are calling for the end of the slave trade. This is a time of enlightenment. People are saying this is against nature. All human beings are equal. Mm. If we're going to be reasonable, if we're going to look at nature, we have to you know, treat everyone equally. So what we get are these natural philosophers, what we would call scientists today, yeah. um, basically saying, no, nature... Um, Nature says something else, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So what they're basically doing is making the economic, the industrial, the cultural realities of slavery as natural seeming as they can mm. and saying, yeah, yeah, you know, we're all the same species. We're all descended from Adam and Eve. I get it. But we were divided up into these families long ago and these families are unequal, just like the different grades of nobility. Mm. And that's just nature. You know, what are you going to do about it, right? Once you categorize these different human varieties as races, it stops being a question of bodily potential. And instead, you're locking them in Mm. to an identity that they can't escape from, no matter what happens. Like you can become rich, you can become poor, whatever, you'll still be this variety now because we've decided this from your blood. You don't even need to look, you don't need to, to display the characteristics of your group, your supposed group, if you have the right blood credentials to put you in this. And this, of course, reflects the reality of slavery, because slavery was hereditary, Mm -hmm. right? A lot of the fathers of slaves were the slave owners, right? And this happened all the time. But the children were slaves because they had slave blood, right? And now they have black blood. Like, this is the idea, Mm -hmm. that it's uh, you're part of this human group. And if you have blood from this human group, this human race, then you are always going to be this human race. You get this new idea of mixed race. This is like a completely new idea in the 1770s. Mm -hmm. Um, This idea that you're a hybrid between these two kind of like fixed things in nature. And before this, those fixed things didn't exist at all. It was just this huge spectrum of humanity. Right. Um, But now there's like these, you know, people start to say there's these like five groups. Okay. And I guess what's interesting as well is like, in order to maintain the credibility of all of this, you have to have cultural power and you have to project it through the culture, whether that's like writing, art, um, I don't know any any number of things you have to we, you have to because it's fictional you have to like create it and maintain it all the time and that requires like probably wealth and influence and power right and that's why you're that's why you're studying yeah. those cultural artifacts to find the evidence of it exactly right yeah. so nobility doesn't exist unless no- nobles prance around being really noble all the time <laughs> people would forget that they're there you know yeah. like you say it's fictional they have to dress up they have to go to parties they have to r- live in palaces they have to do parades they have to do all the stuff in yeah. order to make nobility even exist at all yeah and it's the same thing for whiteness you know like you need to kind of perform this idea of white civ- civility right like civilization this you you have to kind of keep harping on about it in order to make it kind of into a real thing because otherwise yeah. it, m- it melts away pretty quickly yes um so so yeah exactly this is why you see it absolutely everywhere because not only are like these two groups like white europeans and nobles kind of culturally obligated to perform all the time but this seeps into people's understanding of what hierarchy even is so it it permeates absolutely every kind of vision of what hierarchy is this brings us to the example of ireland that you look at in your book because this idea about race and nobility in ireland it, it had a kind of a credibility crisis, <laughs> never, um, yeah. in, in a number of different ways. Um, it didn't stick yeah. quite. And so, and there were like competing yeah. ideas of it. So maybe we can get into that. You mentioned there was a conceptual transformation going on. You have these race theorists who are using power strategies and ability to characterize white people as like a natural elite based on blood and so on. Mm. But then when we look at Ireland, it gets very complicated because there's actually multiple competing versions of quote unquote noble race in Ireland in the 19th in the 18th century. And some of the noble races overlapped with indigenous races who'd long been considered mm-hmm. naturally inferior. So can you explain that? Where where are we seeing this overlap? Okay, right. So yeah, so the clincher here is 
mm. what we just mentioned there um, a minute ago is that to make this happen, to make the kind of the race paradigm happen, you have to control the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, to to define yourself as excellent, you have to control the narrative. And the real problem in Ireland was that who controlled the narrative? Like who controlled the narrative of nobility or race mm. uh, in Ireland? That was actually quite fractured. In Ireland, we have this peculiar racializing element, which is the penal laws. Mm. So the penal laws in the 18th century had segregated people according to religion. And remember, religion was effectively hereditary mm-hmm. and clung to like ethnic groups, basically. Mm. So you, you basically have four ethnic groups in Ireland at this point. You have the the Irish Catholics, who would have been talked about as indigenous Irish. We might talk about them as Gaelic today. Mm. You have the Anglican elite, right? So these would have adhered to the state religion. They would have been Anglican, probably came mostly from England. Mm. You have the uh, dissenting Protestants, right? So uh, Presbyterians in the north uh, part of Ireland who had come in in the 16th century colonial plantations. They wouldn't necessarily have been very elite, and they weren't Anglican, and mm. they would have been from Scotland, right, largely. Okay. Um, um, and then you have this really intriguing group, which is the old English, which is the old Hiberno-Norman elite who were there before Cromwell starts to starts to just take land off everyone. Those are the guys who came in like 800 years ago, right? They're, they were there, yeah. you know, they're, they're almost a millennium. They're like very, very old conquerors. Very old conquerors. And yeah. they've gone native. Like okay. they went completely native. A lot of them are speaking Irish. They've changed their mm. names to Irish names and stuff. Now, because these groups were not just separated by ethnic descent, but also by religion, the religious segregation of the penal laws kind of defines them in a peculiar way. So mm-hmm. a lot of the penal laws were to do with like Catholics not marrying Protestants, for instance. So we get this kind of strange, you know, ethnic segregation happening uh, because mm-hmm. of the penal laws. So that family names become linked to your ethnicity. So if you're O'Sullivan or something, everyone mm-hmm. knows you're probably a Catholic, right? Or, or an O'Flaherta or something. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're like um, a Belvedere, you know, you're probably an Anglican. Or mm-hmm. if you're like, um, if your name is Alistair, you're probably from a dissenting Protestant family in the North. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the names themselves, you know, become linked to your status. And the names in 18th century thought, your family name, of course, is your race, right? So if you mm-hmm. think back again, race means linear family. And what we have in Ireland is kind of linear families being very defined. Now, I mean, don't get me wrong. There was huge crossover between these groups. They weren't completely separated at all. They were all the time marrying in and out of one another. Mm. But it's unusual just to have that kind of definition happening at all. How do we find the idea of nobility trying to insert itself into this somewhat complex patchwork? So there's at least three nobilities going on in Ireland (laughs) in the 18th century. So first of all, we have the Gaelic nobility, which has only really been banished about a hundred years before, right? So um, if we think about like the flight of the earls, right? Like Mm. until this point, the Gaelic nobility had been fairly strong and everyone still remembered them and there was plenty of evidence of Gaelic nobility about it. It wasn't, you know, there was... The idea of them coming back was unlikely, but not impossible, right? You know, people remembered this. Then you have the old English nobility. So those old conquerors you were talking about, it Mm. might be easier to refer to them as Hiberno-Norman because that word old English is quite confusing. It is confusing. It's so confusing. Yeah, Yeah, I hate it. But whatever, these Hiberno-Norman families, like Fitzgeralds, de Burgos, these people who came in 800 years ago had become Gaelicized. They had been pretty much like being a nobility alongside the Gaelic nobility for the last few hundred years. Yeah. A lot of times they had intermarried with them, but they were still a kind of separate thing. They had links with Britain and um, they were more of a feudal idea. Hmm. And then what you have is the ascendancy, which is the official elite that is based on religion. And that's like not really a nobility at all, but they have all the positions of power. Okay. I, this is such a mess. Sorry, this is like, <laughs> listeners, this is such a mess. You're not confused. It's just messy. <laughs> Within the ascendancy, there is an actual legal nobility. Okay. The Irish peerage. So these are the people with actual official titles of nobility that are validated um, mm. under Westminster. This was separate to the British peerage in the 18th century. Mm. Ireland was still officially just a colony. It wasn't part of the UK yet. It was like North America, basically. It was like the North American colonies, except with this kind of weird little facsimile of like the royal institutions. (laughs) Uh, So you have like this House of Lords in Ireland, just like you would have a House of Lords in Britain. 
And the whole idea of like setting up a House of Lords and a House of Commons in Ireland was to like make Ireland like England. Like this was the Mm -hmm. idea. But it was just this complete disaster because this Irish House of Lords and this Irish peerage with their titles, they're surrounded by all these other people who don't particularly respect them. Like lots of the ascendancy were untitled. They were just business people who had become Mm. really rich. So you have people like, I think, um, a man called William Connolly becomes like the richest person in Ireland at that point. He's not a noble. He doesn't have a title. He's like the son of an innkeeper, I think. And he built this massive house and he would like be looking down his nose at these officially titled Irish nobles. This is not how it's supposed to work. You know, like that's not how this is supposed to work. Basically, the cultural realities of colonization made this project of anglicizing Ireland kind of impossible and worse than impossible. It made it kind of ludicrous. It made Mm. it look silly. So everyone just laughed at the Irish nobles, basically the official ones. Loads of them didn't even live in Ireland. Loads of them had never even been to Ireland. And we get this absolute phenomenon in the 18th century where the British government starts to kind of give off Irish titles as a bit of a compensation when they needed to please people. And people got angry about it. They were saying, you're giving me an Irish title? Like, how dare you? Like, it was actually considered like an insult. It was like, there was a stigma about it. Yeah. Because they were seen as like kind of phony. You describe in your book, like how a lot of these people, they're just like a bunch of random English people who like, they don't have the trappings of like traditional nobility or an aristocracy. And then they're given these titles, like, I don't know, Lord of Down or whatever. They're completely indifferent about the land that this corresponds to. And they may never have been yeah. there in Ireland. So it's sort of, it embarrassingly reveals the fiction of the idea of nobility because they're they're constructing one unsuccessfully, basically. <laughs> Exactly. And this is so interesting when you're looking at nobility as a power strategy, because they've lost control of the paradigm. They've lost control of the narrative. And therefore, the nobility isn't working. It's like they haven't successfully like taken the reins of this paradigm. Mm. And even worse, since they, they don't control the paradigm, they don't control the narrative, the official titled legal peers, that leaves it open to other people. So other mm. people start to step in and say, I'm the real no- nobility of Ireland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to give you an example, the brother of uh, Arthur Wellesley, who was the Duke of Wellington, mm-hmm. he got an Irish marquisite. So he was an Ir- Irish marquis, which is a pretty high Irish title. Mm-hmm. And he, he writes to the British Prime Minister at that point, furious, he writes, I quote, I felt confidence that I should find nothing Irish or pinchbeck in my reward, signed yours most affectionately, not having yet received my double gilt potato. Oh my God. So it's, it's this complete disdain. Double gilt potato. <laughs> so, okay. So waiting in the wings yeah. is this other nobility that has a lot more credibility. This is the Hiberno-Norman nobility, the old English nobility. So these old families. Now, a lot of them, they don't, they can't actually sit in the House of Lords because a lot of them are still Catholic. And some of them do sit in the House of Lords, but like they're really kind of nationalistic. So if you think back to our, I I did a half pint on Grattan's Parliament. There is this nationalistic movement that's happening in Ireland, very similar to the um, nationalistic movement in the the American colonies at that point, Mm. where you have these descendants of colonists in Ireland saying, we're different from the British, actually. This this is our country now. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we, we want control of this. So you have them as well. And like, they have this kind of glamour of old uh, Hiberno-Norman heritage. They have old castles in the country. Castles they've had for centuries and centuries. And everybody knows them. Centuries and centuries. It's been going on for ages. Yeah. It's been going on for ages. Yeah. But they've been displaced by a lot of the post-Cromwellian settlers, the Mm. New English. So a lot of the House of Lords and a lot of the House of Commons and a lot of the ascendancy are actually these post-Cromwellian settlers from England. They've only Mm. been there for three or four generations at best, maybe two generations more like. A lot of them, again, are like absolutely they spend most of their time in England and they're not taken seriously as an elite Irish people are not taking these new English people seriously as an elite Mm. and they're kind of looking at the old English who are kind of dispossessed largely as like you know the real nobility right Mm -hmm. and the the newer Englishers are seeming English as well like they're going to have like English sounding names I don't think they're Irish speaking They don't, they're not very credible as people who have a long lineage in Ireland <laughs> compared to these other exactly. people. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Not only, yeah, they're arriving in with their English accents yeah. and they don't know anything about Ireland. Yeah. You know, they, like, 
some of these people who got t- Irish titles didn't even know where the places were mm. that they were getting the titles. They're like, where is it? Um, one of them, you know, uh, the Earl of Down, I think, mm. um, found out that he, he didn't really like the place. So he changed, like, he changed his title territory to another territory. He said, mm. I want a whole county. I just want to, don't want a town. Um, <laughs> this isn't how this is supposed to go. Yeah. Like, the whole idea of nobility is that you are ancestral heirs of the land right. you know the idea is that your family has been on this land since time immemorial like that's the idea this like you say completely undermines the whole thing and mm. exposes just how cynical and arbitrary the whole thing is right okay so you have these new english that nobody who nobody are t- taking seriously and people are kind of like you're a bit common you're not really <laughs> elites like you were cromwell soldiers you just seize land you know you have no old links with the land at all mm-hmm you have these old English Hiberno-Normans who are uh, like kind of more respected, but kind of pushed to the sidelines a little bit and yeah. a little bit more balshy, a little bit more kind of uh, nationalistic. And then what you start to see are fairly ordinary Irish people say, you're both wrong. Mm. We're the real nobility, the Gaelic nobility, mm. and we can prove it because of our race. And what they mean by that is their family name. Mm. So you have people called... McLaughlin, who say, I am McLaughlin from the great dynasty of McLaughlins. I knew where my parents lived. The McLaughlins used to be lords of this town. And, you know, this would be fairly feasible to actually find, you know, local elites in a few generations hence yeah. um, that had your name and say, well, I'm the rightful king of Longford. <laughs> you know or whatever yeah <laughs> like people very seriously start doing this like mm. in ireland people saying sure okay the hiberno normans have been here for ages and the new english people have been he- here for like two days we've been here for millennia like mm. we are the real ancestral heirs of this land and if we're going to take nobility seriously as a thing natural nobility like that this is a natural part of this of the universal order of the world then clearly we're the natural nobility right and more than that your race disqualifies you So people start to use race in the sense of linear family to say to these new English nobles with official titles of nobility, you can't possibly be the true Irish nobility because you are not of the Irish race, right? You don't have these ancient Irish linear family Mm -hmm. names. So race in the sense of linear family starts to take on this very ethnicized sense Mm. that kind of you you can see it again approaching what will happen in the natural sciences you can see race kind of taking on the form of this kind of ethnic segregation um, uh, based on family line it was interesting to read you quoted a few examples in that chapter of of people who were going so extreme with the whole lineage claiming thing that they were claiming descent from the Milesians or from the goddess Anya mm. and things like that, like going back into like folklore. Yeah, I, like this wasn't unusual at the yeah. time. So people were very keen to try and trace the ancestry of nations to like ancient peoples mm. and the idea that, oh, this ancient person, like, I don't know, like Achilles founded this country or whatever, yeah. you know. The Milesians was one, it was just one of many kind of legends of where the Irish came from. But what we're seeing there as well is another interesting tendency that kind of like confuses this all, which is thinking of nation Uh, in terms of race. Hmm. So very often people will start to use language at this point, like the race of Milesians or the Irish race or the English race or whatever. And what they're doing here, again, they're still not talking about biological subgroups of people. What they're doing is they're talking about their people as a family that reproduces itself over time, Mm. something that exists throughout time so that the the people in uh, in this country are the inheritors of the Milesians basically we've you know we've we we have been reproducing the culture and the braveness and the whatever traditions of these people uh, since since this time now as I understand it the just as these Aravist like English people who were claiming to be titled lords or whatever had a crisis of credibility in Ireland so did these people who were claiming Gaelic heritage or any association with it have a credibility crisis in England because there particularly from their perspective <laughs> that was problematic because the, that, that was associating them with this Gaelic Catholic underclass which was being racialized as inferior right 
Yes, oh my god. So this is such an interesting and important aspect of all this, because on top of all of these arguments about race and family name and all that, there is this whole other layer of racialization in the understanding of the quote-unquote indigenous Irish as a colonial other in their minds and also in their physical bodies, mm. which absolutely exists at this point as well. So just to get things straight here, the indigenous Irish, quote unquote, represented the vast majority of the country at this point, about 75 to 80% of the population, but they were not really considered part of the Irish nation. They have this qualifier before their name, indigenous Irish. The Irish were the Irish Protestants. In the minds of 18th century people in Britain, when you talked about the Irish, you were talking about the Irish Protestants. When you talked about the Irish nation, you were talking about the nation of colonial settlers. And um, I mean, this mirrors, if we can, we can find an easy kind of comparison in this, let's say in Australia, where we have the word Australian and then we have the word Aboriginal Australian, right? This kind of qualifying thing, right? That's very much how Irish would have been used um, as a piece of vocabulary at this point. And the indigenous Irish were very much seen in the same terms as colonial others in different parts of the world, like Australia or like in North America. And they pop up in books of natural philosophy in the topic of human variety. People describe how they are physically different to other people in Europe. They are this colonial other, you know, so it's absolutely fascinating. Okay. And this has been going on for a very long time. I'm sure we've encountered examples of this in previous episodes. Uh, so, for instance, um, all the way back in 1617, there was a travel writer called Fines Morrison, and he reports about the Irish. He says, quote, Irish women, within two hours after they are delivered, that means after they give birth, many times leave their beds to gossip and drink with women coming to visit them. Some say that commonly the women have little or no pain in childbearing and attribute the same to a broken bone. Mm. So, and basically, he's saying that Irish women don't experience pain in childbirth. They hop up. They're happy to, you know, go and go out and have a drink immediately after giving birth to children. This was such a common thing to say about the colonial other in the 18th century and uh, further decades as well, because it was implicitly a animalizing, right. right? The idea was that these people, these non-Europeans or these colonial others don't experience kind of human sensibility, human sensitivity. They, they're more animal in their bodily functions. Um, you know, so this, you know, so that's all the way back in 1617. But right till the end of the 18th century, the Irish body is showing up in works about human variety. So you might take the example of uh, Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, who was one of the main, one of the most influential race theorists of his day. Many people would attribute really modern race theory to his work. He wrote a very influential book called De Generis Humani Varietate Nativa in 1795 that gave us a lot of the vocabulary and the methodology that was used in subsequent uh, racial pseudoscience uh, after that. And he talks about the Irish. He talks about their pendulous breasts. He says that Irish women have pendulous breasts, which makes them similar to Hottentots. So the Hottentots was this kind of semi-fictional people that was based on the, the Khoi Khoi people in South Africa. Um, and they, he said that they have large legs like the Maori people. So the Irish body is coming under the scientific microscope right. at this point as well in terms of, of physical difference, difference in stature. And all of this is existing kind of separately and alongside this notion of race and Irish race. Now that part that whole dimension of what's going on in the 18th century adds another layer of complexity to the very idea of Irish nobility. So, like, the word Irish kind of comes with these connotations in 18th century Britain, these negative connotations of savagery, of otherness, of uh, kind of lowliness, of treachery, of laziness, of all of these colonial stereotypes. And putting the words Irish and nobility kind of together, mm. it almost, uh, you know, it didn't really make sense. And you can feel that there is an anxiety about this. There's definitely a, like a real anxiety about this, um, which comes up a lot when we see encounters between people who are claiming Gaelic nobility and other people, let's say people in Britain. There's this real anxiety mm. and nervousness, kind of tittering, nervous laughter uh, that we can see absolutely, especially through the medium of literature. 
So what you get in the 18th century are all of these, let's say they're kind of gentry, kind of squirearchy, right? Like Irish squires, they have a bit of money, they have a bit of land, and now they've decided, I am I am the heir to the kings of Longford or wherever you might be from. <laughs> you know, um, they, they get these like quite bombastic ideas about themselves and why the hell not? I mean, they have uh, like, they have legitimate claim to it, right? Like if you're going to take nobility seriously, um, then they, they have as much legitimate claim to it as anyone else and a lot more than a lot of these official nobles. So a lot of these people would be, since they have a little bit of money, a little bit of land, they would be engaging in like the activities of the elite in Britain. Like they're in the same kind of cultural sphere. So that would mean going to certain places at certain times of the year, going to London at a certain time of the year, and then going, let's say, to Bath at a certain time of the year to go to parties, to go to the spa, and to go and find wives and husbands. Like this is especially what you did in Bath. You went to find a marriage partner. So you get all of these Irish um, kind of squires or gentry showing up in Bath and presenting themselves as like the heirs to the King of Connacht, you know, <laughs> etc. Yeah. And of course, the English take them completely seriously. They're okay. like, really? And they say, yeah, yeah, no, we have our ancestral castle there up in Ballina. And, you know, it's probably, you know, like this burnt out castle that's been there since the Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> so like there's this complete misunderstanding and... Uh, a genre of literature emerges in the mid-18th century, kind of warning people about these Irish collabros, right? Like these mm. Irish kind of um, fakers who are okay. going around and trying to marry, like, English heiresses and take them off back to their, like, pokey farm out in wherever <laughs> they're, they're from. Yeah. Like, Ireland would have been such an inhospitable place for somebody who was used to the comforts of Bath, you know, like, usually... Mm. So there's this whole genre of theatre where every time you see an Irishman come on stage, he starts barking about his ancestry. And the idea was that this was silly. Okay. So like on the, in the theatre, I think we talked about this in our Irish accent episode, the stage yeah. Irishman is all bound up with this. The whole idea was like, this is obviously silly. Like mm. obviously being an heir to the um, the great kingdom of Chiaroan is not the same as being the Duke of Marlborough. You know, okay. like this was just a, like an obvious assumption in England. But there's an interesting thing that kind of starts to happen that Irish writers are taking part in this genre. They're making plays, they're making novels. Mm. And it starts to be less of a joke. As they write, they start to be less satirical of themselves so mm. like a really good example is a man called uh, Charles Macklin now he was actually Cahill McLaughlin and he was a really successful playwright and he used to write these kind of silly plays where the Irishman gets sent up and you have Scotsmen who come in on stage as well like stage Scotsmen as well mm-hmm. and stage Jews who come in and stage Italians and like mm-hmm. everyone being made fun of for like their mm. stereotypes but his plays start to get more and more provocative uh, so, like, he writes one called The True Born Irishman, which is, like, really interesting one, where you have this kind of silly squire, and his wife is saying, oh, you know, you should really try and try and get a title. Try and get a title in this, like, Irish peerage, and you can be mm-hmm. an important person. And this squire laughs at her, you know, because, like, ostensibly because he's this silly squire who thinks that he's better, but it's got an edge, because mm-hmm. he's got a bit of a point, you know? <laughs> So he says this, here's a little quote from that. Mm. He says, She would have me desert my friends and sell myself, my honour and my country, as several others have done before me, merely for a title, and sink the ancient name of Doherty in the upstart title of Lady Thingham. (laughs) So, like, it's suddenly turning the joke around a little bit. And the person who's being made fun of is actually the official colonial period. He says... He says, what are a parcel, I quote, what are a parcel of little pimping names that a man would not pick out of the street compared to the O'Donovans and the O'Callaghans? For they come out of the mouth like a storm. They are as old as the Bog of Allen, though they have been dispossessed by upstarts and foreigners. (sighs) Now, like the foreigners he's talking about are the ascendancy. You know, like this is really close to the bone here. Mm -hmm. You know, he's he's pushing this a little bit more. And this play actually goes so far that it gets banned. That play actually got banned in London. It was too much. Um, People, it it was restaged again um, a few years later and there were riots in the theatre about this play. 
So I, I think that betrays that this was a problem, mm. that this was no longer like silly Irish squires kind of barking on about things. Mm. Like this was seriously undermining any sense of kind of natural British um, control. It was undermining the rule. Right. Yeah, it was undermining the rule. Yeah. 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 So I remember from your Grattan episode that there was a sort of a sense of growing Irish confidence um, around this. Grattan's Parliament, as you talked about. Can you tell us some, 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 some more about that? Yeah, right. So what, what we're basically seeing in Ireland throughout the 18th century is effectively a Gaelic revival. It's actually so similar to the Gaelic revival of the early 20th century, sometimes that it like blows my mind. Uh, because similarly, what they're doing is they're flipping the paradigm. Um, just like we saw in that example of that play. That play, by the way, it was from the 1760s. So, like, a lot of this actually comes from the 17th century. There was uh, a writer called Geoffrey Keating. His real name was um, Shefrun uh, Ketchin, actually. And he wrote a, a, a history of Ireland called Furus Fassa uh, Ererin. It was, um, it was an, a history of Gaelic Ireland, where he basically writes the history of what he calls Aranuk. And when he says Aranuk, he means basically everyone else who isn't descended from a colonial settler. So he's redefining kind of the nature of Irishness and excluding basically the ascendancy and people of Protestant descent, mostly, um, by way of their quote unquote race, their lineal descent again. So we have this kind of like funny kind of redefinition of, of what Irishness is. And this comes to permeate a lot of things in the later 18th century. So by the later 18th century, like you say, we have Grattan's Parliament, entirely peopled by Protestants, but who are starting to think of themselves as kind of specially Irish, like different from the English, starting to kind of reassert their links with Irish culture. You have a lot of people, Catholic and Protestants, who are starting to learn Irish, who are starting to kind of dig around in Irish mythology and things like that and to, and to celebrate Irish. Um, it's very interesting. And of course, this explodes with the 1798 rebellion, which we, we might have a moment to discuss in a minute. As it leads up to that, we actually see plays and novels like this turn quite dramatically and aggressively against Britain and against, like, against the ascendancy and against the whole idea of the established nobility of Ireland. So there's a really, really interesting book, very little known. It's a, it's a little novel written by a woman who called herself Mrs. F.C. Patrick. I haven't found out very much about her. I don't know if that's her real name. Uh, but she wrote a book called The Irish Heiress in 1797. So a year before the 1798 rebellion. And she basically writes this book about people rediscovering their Gaelic nobility and throwing off the shackles of this British nobility. And she describes her family history. She says, I quote, My grandfather was offered a title by the late Duke of Bedford on condition of rising his influence at an election. His answer was an Irish one, for it was a question. Is it me, honey? Me, Terry O'Flaherty, that you would like to make a lord? Me, that I'm descended from the kings of Connacht? Everybody knows me and mine these four thousand years, nor will they forget those after me, as long as they keep up their names. But if we take up titles, then we shall mix with all the new lords that nobody knows, nor anybody wants to know. You know, it's a complete turnaround here. And like the fact that this is written at a moment of insurrection against British rule, against nobility as a very concept, against um, monarchy as this Republican insurrection is not a coincidence, I don't think, at all. So it's this collapse of nobility as an authority in Ireland and this rise of alternative nobilities, I think, that, you know, like plays into that quite a lot. Oh my God, it's so interesting. I, like, I'm so fascinated to know who this woman is. Like, who is this lady who's writing mm -hmm. this thing? It's so interesting. Yeah, listen, I, yeah, I, I didn't have time to look into her very much. Maybe yeah. somebody out there knows exactly who she is, but I couldn't find myself any information on her. <laughs> you finish off that chapter by talking a little bit about Ireland's most famous nobleman, Lord Edward Fitzgerald, who's actually come yeah. up before on the podcast. I remember one of our listeners described him as extra, which made me laugh. Um... So uh, yeah. you kind of talk about him in explaining how even during that moment of secular republicanism, this idea of noble race still remained important. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is so interesting. So one of the worries, I think, in Britain about this Irish, Irish nobles, like mm. Irish, by, by the way, this is important to mention, the British were worried about the Irish nobles and the Irish ascendancy precisely because they saw them as infiltrated with all these different nobilities too. 
So they were worried about the new English uh, being in the nobility because they too, even in Britain, even in London, people were like, these guys are not noble. Let's stop <laughs> pretending. They were worried about the old English, which brings in Lord Ed- Edward Fitzgerald, which we'll talk about in a minute. And they were worried about all the Gaelic blood in the ascendancy, which was maybe even warming its way into the nobility, Mm. because people thought, of course, that this was affecting the character and the minds of the nobility and that this is why they were so ineffectual, because, you know, they they weren't actually the proper heirs. You know, they weren't really the ancestral heirs as nature had decided. They weren't excellent. They were they didn't have this natural excellence that's passed down um, properly. Or if you think about it in ethnic terms, you know, they weren't fully pure blood, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like in this in this way. Yeah. There was this worry that the people actually in the seats of power were dangerous up to no good Mm. using their power for things that they shouldn't be so I'll just mention one more Mm. uh, kind of fascinating novel this is an English novel it was uh, published in 1785 by a novelist called Elizabeth Blower it's one of these society novels so a little bit like um, I suppose Fanny Burney or what would become a kind of Jane Austen kind of stuff okay Um, and this this one's called Maria so you have all these people hanging around, you know, marriage markets, etc., getting into trouble uh, with their virtue. And they meet this <laughs> evil, evil Irish noble. And you're trying to destroy everyone's lives. Before we know this about him, we get this glimmer, right? Uh, that there's something wrong. There's something wrong with his nobility. So listen to mm. this description. His name is Lord Newry. So mm-hmm. Lord Newry was a native of the Kingdom of Ireland, about the age of five and twenty. His figure was tall and manly. His eyes were dark and had a fire and wildness bordering on ferocity. His complexion was florid, his features prominent and masculine, and his profile of the Grecian turn, rendering his person generally pleasing to the ladies, though his manners had more ease than elegance, and his conversation displayed a greater degree of spirit and vivacity than wit or solid understanding. Hmm. So, like, he's too sexy to be a noble. There's something... (laughs) There's something not quite right here. What's kind of fascinating there is this idea of wildness, ferocity, underneath the surface. You know, he does not have control of his emotions. You know, he's florid. It's like bubbling, bubbling (laughs) up to the surface. And a man like this is not a good governor. You know, that's the idea, right? This guy cannot govern. Now... All of these fears would probably have come together in the British mind when it came to someone like Lord Edward Fitzgerald. So Edward Fitzgerald is born into this great Irish dynasty of the Old English, the Hiberno-Normans of the Geraldines. Mm. They're the oldest, I think they were the oldest surviving um, Hiberno-Norman dynasty in Ireland, one of the first kind of earliest settlers in the medieval wave of settlers. Mm. And since then, they had completely gone native. They had completely gone native. A lot of them called themselves in Irish names. So um, Garage Ogue and Garage Moore and things like that. Gerald, yeah. uh, Gerald the Old and Gerald, Gerald the Younger. Uh, Tomás and Sheada, so our Irish listeners might remember that from um, from history lessons in high mm. school, the Silken Thomas. Um, and a lot of these people had not just taken up Gaelic names, but they had been rebels in the past. Like they had mm. actually rebelled against the British crown hundreds of years ago in different circumstances. At this stage, the Geraldines were part of the official peerage too. They had official titles. Um, They had the highest official titles in the Irish peerage, which was the Duke of Leinster. Mm. Um, That meant that they lived in Leinster House, by the way, which is the government building today. Leinster House, which that's it. Yeah, that's theirs. And they had a beautiful big house down in uh, County Kildare. I want to say County Kildare. Carton House, anyway. Mm. It's, it's, um, It's not very far from Dublin. It's been destroyed, unfortunately, by the development of a golf course on its beautiful grounds, which like hurts my heart whenever I think about it. Mm. Um, but it was like kind of the Versailles. It used to be the Versailles of Ireland. And mm. wonderful as the Celtic Tiger was, we decided to turn our Versailles into a golf course. Nice. Um, but <laughs> um, like they, they were really, really fabulous. The real European elites. Okay. And this family were like real, what we would call today, I suppose, Irish nationalists in the sense that they were really behind Grattan's parliament. They really wanted autonomy for Ireland. They wanted the Irish ascendancy parliament to kind of break away a bit from Westminster to have control over its old destinies. And they had a reputation for having the interests of the Irish at heart, which was unusual because most Mm. of the Irish ascendancy were uninterested, if not absentee. Mm -hmm. Now, so he has that on his side. Uh, But what Edward Edward Fitzgerald is the younger son, Lord Edward, And during the 1798 rebellion, basically, 
he takes this a step further by rejecting the whole thing. He cuts his hair off in the revolutionary style. He denounces his title, his noble title, the highest noble title in Ireland, mm. and adopts the title of citizen. He calls himself Citizen Fitzgerald. Mm. And he starts wearing a tricolor cravat in the French revolutionary flag. Okay. He, would, he would go to like functions of the ascendancy, he would go to parties and balls, and then he'd start to hiss when they sang God Save the King. <laughs> so he was like this great provocateur on the streets, kind of this very public, you know, he'd be walking down Grafton Street, people would like see this guy, right? Yeah. Like the stories of, uh, of people seeing him uh, walking around on the streets, which nobles did not do. You know, nobles traveled around in carriages with their insignia on, you know? Yeah. Um, so this like defection from the highest nobility in Ireland by one of the members of the highest noble family in Ireland is you know, this hugely influential thing. He joins the 1798 rebellion. He dies, of course. And what we see here basically is kind of the real narrative power of Irish nobility being used effectively in mm. this case. He's got everything. He's got the official title of peerage from, from the official peerage. He's got the Old English credentials and he's got Gaelic credentials. So nobody mm. can deny him the kind of epithet of Irish nobility. That this guy is in control of the narrative if anybody was. And he uses the narrative to denounce nobility as a as a concept. Wow. Like how powerful that is 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 absolutely like amazing. Wow. Uh, so to wrap this up, uh, yeah. where Ireland comes into this book basically is that the noble paradigm um, breaks down in Ireland. It allows people who are not noble to start claiming excellence in mm. a way that like they shouldn't be able to do. And the great irony of this is that the the reason they were able to claim excellence is because they were defined as an other in the first place. The mm. fact that they were defined as an other, as different to colonial settlers, as indigenous, as wild Irish. Mm. These people, precisely because they have been described as other, are able to assume a blood purity because they're able to say, we are unmixed. Oh, yeah, you, you're right. We're not like you. We are a pure and unmixed people. And ergo, we are the natural leaders of this land. We are the Irish race, right? Quote, unquote. Uh, this fascinating kind of meeting of these growing ideas of ethnicity, of major human races, of natural sciences, and of culture and politics, like on the same field. Wow, Tim, that was an amazing rundown of a lot of research on a very complicated topic. Thank you so much for taking us through it. And just to remind all our listeners, the book is called Nobility and the Making of Race in 18th Century Britain, and it's published by Bloomsbury Academics. Tim, remind us where readers can get their hands on a copy. So you can get your hands on a copy in most places that you buy a book, but if you want a little discount, you can go straight to the Bloomsbury Academic website. That's www.bloomsbury.com and we'll put the link in the show notes. Okay, that's it for this episode. And as a quick reminder, if you want to access our extra content, it's always available for our subscribers over on patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport, where supporters of the podcast keep the whole show on the road. And we are so grateful for that. Slán for now. Slán, everyone. <laughs>